Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, make sure that your tables are locked securely into place is the lesson that we've learned so far today. Um, sorry about that. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 1. And we'll get to this text in just a few minutes. Um, Romans 1 is the uh, clearest New Testament passage and maybe the clearest in the whole Bible on the issue of homosexuality. And so again, we are on our third week on uh, homosexuality in the Bible, and uh, we'll get to that in a moment. First, uh, I would like to ask Papa Fred to pray, and then uh, maybe you guys could, could talk a little bit about the Nashville Statement. We mentioned it last week. You guys actually have a copy of it here with you this week. Talk a little bit about that, and then we can get into uh, Romans 1. Papa Fred, can you pray for us? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in, in adoration and praise and and at the same time, humility as we're confronting this issue of uh, for the culture, against the culture. Um, we've turned to Romans 1, as Mark mentioned, the, uh, the best uh, scripture in the New Testament anyway, dealing with all these issues that we're discussing. And, uh, you know, I, I personally fluctuate, Lord, between... Um, um, just feelings of depression and feelings of dismay at how quickly and how fast our culture has moved in this direction. And uh, But Lord, as uh, Greg reminded me a few minutes ago, uh, you're still on your throne. You're still uh, sovereign and uh, providential in, in, in your work and your will and, and uh, it's our role to uh, rightly exposit Scripture and to preach the good news. And so that we will today. And I pray that your Spirit embolden us, empower us, reveal to us the truth as we're talking about this issue, uh, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Greg, you want to say a few words about the Nashville Statement? <clears throat> Yeah, so I uh, hope some of y'all may have had a chance to look this up um, over the week since we, we referenced it briefly uh, last Sunday. Um, you can actually print it out. It's three full pages front and back. Um, but the Nashville Statement was um, a bunch of different believers coming together to address the, the very clear danger that we see uh, in our culture of compromise on biblical sexuality, gender roles, you know, identity and, and stuff like that. And it was largely well received, like, you know, like previous big statements like the, the one on inerrancy, like there ten, didn't tend to be a lot of, you know, disagreement amongst true conservatives at the time. There were some who, who pushed back on it, um, because they said it was just mean-spirited and it was oppressive and this, that, and the other. They never really offered a critique in terms of its substance. All they did was really just get angry at it that it existed. Um, but the Nashville Statement is something we highly recommend. It's, it's very helpful on these issues. Um, and it says, the Nashville Statement, a coalition for biblical sexuality. And the, the psalm that it has at the top is Psalm 100, verse 3. And it says this, Know that the Lord himself is God. 
It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. And the whole point is, there is a design for us as human beings, as male and female, in terms of how we relate, in terms of our sexuality. There is a design that comes from God himself. And as the designer, as the creator, God tells us how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to function. And the Nashville Statement is simply an attempt to apply what the Bible says to a modern problem. Um, And it says, I'll just read a little bit from the preamble, and I think we can all recognize this in our own culture. It says, evangelical Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in a period of historic transition. As Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian, it has embarked upon a massive revision of what it means to be a human being. By and large, the spirit of our age no longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory and that his good purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. It is common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's beautiful plan, but is rather an expression of an individual's autonomous preferences. The pathway to full and lasting joy through God's good design for his creatures is thus replaced by the path of short-sighted alternatives that, sooner or later, ruin human life and dishonor God. And so that's, there's several other paragraphs that kind of started off, and it's really, it's 14 short articles uh, with affirmations and denials. Um, and we'll just read the first one, okay? Because this, this one's really uh, touching on uh, our issue right now of homosexuality. It says this, We affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife, and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. We deny that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. Any comments or thoughts on just that intro? Well, we've gone back to Genesis 1 and 2 that basically state this this very fact that uh, marriage is is a foundation building block of God's creation. And that marriage is between a, a man and, and a woman. And, and so all the remainder of the articles deal with all the various elements that we've already discussed or have been discussing over the weeks. But it begins with God's creation. It begins with God uh, designing marriage uh, between a man and a woman for many purposes, but one of which is procreation. And... And when you deny that and you, you don't substitute like Greg, uh, he read, he, uh, polyamorous or polygamous or homosexual relationship, it, it just doesn't fit with the truth of what the Bible says. And so uh, it, I don't think it's mean-spirited. I just think it's a fact. Yeah, and I, as I've said, <clears throat> we don't actually need any of the particular passages in the Bible that deal specifically with homosexuality to know that it is still wrong. All we need to know is God's design for sexuality. God's design for sex is for marriage. 
Marriage is universally in Scripture between a biological man and a biological woman. That's, that's what it is. And so the Bible talks about marriage and sexuality in that context throughout the whole of Scripture, uh, all over the place. All kinds of passages deal with that. And anything that is, that where, where sexual desire or action is taken outside of a man and a woman in the lifelong covenant commitment of marriage, anytime sexual desire or action is taken outside of that context, it is universally condemned throughout all of Scripture. So I don't need the specific Romans 1, 26 and 27 to know homosexuality is wrong. I just need to know God's design for marriage and sex. It's very clear in Scripture what it is. It's abundantly clear. I mean, mm -hmm. marriage is so clear in the Bible. Oh, my goodness. Just flipped to anything. I mean, anywhere in the Bible, you'll see it there crystal clear. So I don't need to have every single distortion of sex specifically mm -hmm. condemned to know that every other version of it would be a form of sinfulness, whether it's a boyfriend and girlfriend sleeping together. Obviously, that would be wrong because they're not yet in a covenant of marriage. And whether it's in a whole, Leviticus gives you almost, turns your face red, all the specific kinds of sexual morality you can imagine. Reading, Remember, we read Leviticus 18 and 20 a little bit last week. You're like, wow, that's in the Bible. That's amazing. But it just goes through every conceivable different kind of relationship, and they're all universally condemned. So uh, this is from that perspective, it's actually very clear to me uh, what Scripture teaches on this, but we actually are given the benefit of many clear texts that also deal with this no. as well. Well, something else the, uh, the Nashville Statement brings out. Uh, this is Article 10. I'm going to read the affirmation, and then there's something very important in the denial that I want to comment on. So it says, We affirm that it is sinful to approve of homosexual immorality or transgenderism and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. We deny that the approval of homosexual immorality or transgenderism is a matter of moral indifference about which otherwise faithful Christians should agree to disagree. I bring that, that last part up because there are some who are trying to treat this as like a disagreement, disagreement over the doctrine of election or disagreement over should we be Baptist or Presbyterian or, or something like that, or like an end times issue. Like, this is an issue that if you don't see eye to eye, you can't have fellowship. Like, you can have fellowship with people over a whole host of issues um, because, you know, um, when you affirm God's design for creation, you affirm the basics of salvation, the, the heart of the gospel, you can have fellowship and, and disagree on what we've called kind of secondary you know, matters that are still important, but they're not as weighty as you know, justification, salvation by grace through faith alone, not according to works, the Trinity, Jesus alone, all that. Um, when, when someone says they are a believer and yet they fully endorse homosexuality as an acceptable practice lifestyle mindset in God's eyes, they are fundamentally distorting reality as God has made it to be. And as people who are to love the truth, we cannot have fellowship with folks who are fundamentally denying reality as God created it. And so it is not just an agree to disagree issue. Um, it's much more fundamental and weighty I than that. I want to just say same thing, what you're saying. Uh, I had a student one time, a very in intelligent student I had a few years ago, and uh, she basically said this, the opposite of what you just said, which mm -hmm. is that, that I believe homosexuality is wrong personally, but I don't think it's a huge deal if someone personally believes it's not wrong. You know, I mean, it's not like the center of the gospel. But I don't remember what I said to her at the time. I probably, I don't know what I said. But what I would say now, if I, uh, having, having had time to think about it, is I would say, yes, but at the center of the gospel is this. You've got to repent of sin. And anybody who says, you know, you can just live in adultery, it's fine. We can, we can agree to disagree on adultery. You'd be like, 
No, we, we can't. Because if you're living in adultery without repentance, you don't bear the mark of a Christian. Uh, and if you're living in a homosexual lifestyle without the fight against sin, without the mark of repentance, you don't bear the mark of a Christian. And if a boyfriend and girlfriend are living together and regularly sleeping together, and they're called on it and they won't repent, and they, they refuse to repent, they keep doing it relentlessly, they don't bear the mark of a Christian. So these actually are center circle issues. It's the issue of repentance. It's, repentance is the most fundamental, basic doctrine of Christianity. It's the number one thing. Turn from the lifestyle of sin, trust in Christ. And if, if, if we're going to say that what is the Bible calls sin is not sin, and you don't need to repent of these sexual practices, then we do have a fundamental first order issue actually on our hands. We're not dealing with a third level issue like worship styles or eschatology like you've talked about. But no, we're dealing with a center circle issue. Are we going to call sin what it is? Mm -hmm. And are we going to call people to repent of it? Or are we going to allow them to live in it? And th th that could be true of all um, a manner of sexual sins. We're not just referring to one. We're not just targeting only one. Uh, that, that's a whole host of sins. Well, and it also goes back to, and I know we're going to, this will help us maybe get into Romans 1 if we want to. You know, we mentioned last week from Leviticus, one of the things I said was when you look at the different, um, the different commands in Leviticus and, you know, what set uh, God's people apart, you know, homosexuality and sexual immorality was of a different category than like different, you know, wearing blended fabrics and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, God never said... You know, the reason why he was bringing Israel to judge Cana, the Canaanites was because they wore blended fabrics. No, it was because they engaged in unrepentant homosexuality, child murder through their offering of their children to Molech and stuff like that, and all kinds of sexual perversion. God said it's because of that that the land's going to vomit them out. And he told Israel, if you do that, guess what? The land will vomit you out too. So there is something significant um, in terms of our relationship to God and what it reveals when we are sexually deviant, when we go against God's pattern. And in Romans 1, like that, if you've read Romans 1, I know uh, most of you guys have, you've probably heard this talked on, but we're going to linger there. Um, sexual immorality is kind of like the chief way that humanity overthrows it's, it's need for God. Like, it's like this is our ultimate expression of rebellion, our ultimate expression of independence from God. Um, you see that in the Old Testament because so much of the false worship ends up with some form of cult prostitution, this, that, and the other. Um, and in the New Testament, as Paul says, you know, this is the sign that someone has been given over to a reprobate, depraved mind, is that they have lost their conscience, conscious, conscience, when it comes to sexual morality. And I've mentioned this book a year or so ago. Um, so Kevin DeYoung's book, this is the best short book I know of on the issue of homosexuality. It's called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. It's a tremendous uh, synthesis of all the information in a very understandable short way. I mean, it's amazing how DeYoung is able to do that. But in terms of a massive book on it, th this is considered like the number one scholarly book on the topic. This is The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Text and Hermeneutics by Robert Gagnon. This book is absolutely remarkable in its breadth in covering this issue. And just, I'm going to be quoting it a few times today, but one thing Gagnon says is this, and this backs up, I think, what Greg is saying. Quote, few areas are so given to self-deception as the area of sexuality, where the potential for pleasure is greatest, the potential for clever and self-serving sophistry is also greatest. Doesn't that make sense? 
When, there, when there's the promise of pleasure, oh, that, this is so pleasurable, well, then I'm going to be all the more likely to justify and rationalize sinful sexual behavior because I want that pleasure. And that the more the pleasure, the more the, the, the temptation to rationalize and to bend Scripture and to even break what Scripture is saying in order to get what I want. And so we need to be extra cautious. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is talking about these very issues, including sexual sin and homosexuality, Paul says, remember, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom. But Paul says there's going to be an extra temptation on this issue to be deceived, even in the first century. It's not just a modern thing. Paul was writing that in, what, the 50s AD. And he says there, there's going to be a, a, a very easy ability to be deceived on this topic because of, of the pleasure that is offered, at least promised, even though it comes with uh, all kinds of consequences. There, there's still that there that makes it uh, tempting. Let's jump into to Romans 1. So... Uh, we're not going to read the whole chapter here. Let me just say a few introductory things. If you remember here, you look at, uh, look at verse 16. Greg, uh, Papa Fred, excuse me. Can you read verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1? I'd be glad to. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in other words, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, forth faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if you look at verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? The righteousness of God, Christ's righteousness that saves us, that covers us. It's it is clear. Revealed. It, it's clear. It's been revealed. Yes, it's, clear, it's clearly revealed in the gospel. And then look at verse 18 to contrast. Why do we need that righteousness revealed? For the wrath of God is revealed. Now, do you see how those go together? God has revealed both his wrath against sin and also his righteousness to save through the gospel and also here through general revelation, he, he reveals his judgment. And let's just look at a few important verses here. Greg, would you read 18? I know these are well known, but 18 to 23. Yeah. Uh, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, the most fundamental sin is idolatry, exchanging God's glory for the glory of creation. So, exchanging the creator for the creation, worshiping what God has made over God himself. And that leads to a whole manner of other sins. Think about it. If you worship money, you will lie to get more money. You will cheat to get more money. You will steal to get more money. You'll do whatever you can do if you worship money to get more money or whatever. Fill in the blank. If I worship reputation, I will do things that are sinful to get my reputation to go higher, or at least look higher to other people, and on and on, right? Whatever it is I'm worshiping, whatever I bow down to, that will be the thing that creates other issues. Now, um, let's keep going here. The, the, we're going to get into the main issue. Papa Frick, can you read 24 to uh, 25? <clears throat> Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now you'll, you'll notice in verse, and we haven't read all of these yet, the even verses, 24, 26, and 28. Each of those verses say the same thing. God gave them up or gave them over to their sinful desires. So 24, God gave them up. 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So three times, God looks at the idolatry, people exchanging him for other things, and God says, okay, as an actor, so there are two ways in which God's wrath can show up. One is his active wrath that we tend to think of, like when he returns to judge the world. There's flaming fire, there's angels, there's judgment, there's even the lake of fire. That is, we think of the active wrath of God. But when the wrath of God is being revealed here, which is a present tense reality, God's wrath in the present is a passive wrath. God's wrath right now is, is saying, if you really want to worship creation, if you want to worship this world, the worst thing I can do is say, I'm going to give you what you want. Have at it. That's the, it's the worst thing. It's, it's God's passive wrath. It's when, when you say, I want what is not you, Lord. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give it to you. That's the, it's the worst thing God can do is give you what you want when our, when our hearts are locked into sin. And so three times God says, okay, if you're going to worship what is not me, I am going to give people over to that. I'm going to give them over to uh, this dishonoring of themselves. And we're going to get to the key text right now. These are the two longest verses in the New Testament on this issue and the clearest verses. Greg, can you read 26 and 27? <clears throat> For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Well, I'll take, uh, there's a lot we're gonna, we hope to say about this uh, passage here. Let me just start by reading some technical things. So, um, it's nice to know how phrases are used in the Greek of the day, right, from, from the Greek culture. So, I would never have known this had it not been for Gagnon's book, but Gagnon gives you a bunch of examples of people like Plato and other writers, Philo, Josephus, who are all writing in Greek from around the time, before and during the time of Paul. So I want you to hear a phrase. This is a very important. Look at, at the end of verse 26. For their women exchanged natural relations. For those that are contrary to nature... I'm just going to tell you the Greek just so you know I'm not making this up, okay? The Greek for contrary to nature is parafusin, okay? Nature is fusin, uh, para is against or contrary to nature, okay? Parafusin, contrary to nature. I want you to hear how Greek writers use that phrase, parafusin, in relationship to sexual morality from before the time of Paul. So this is in the milieu, the cultural milieu Paul is writing in. Here's how Plato uses that exact same Greek phrase uh, in the 600s, uh, uh, I believe it is. Quote, when males... Now, this is a pretty direct quote, okay? I'm just letting you know. When male unites with female for procreation, the pleasure experience is held to be in accordance with nature, katafusin, in accordance with nature, when a male and female unite, but contrary to nature, parafusin, same exact Greek word, Paul, two words Paul's using, but contrary to nature, parafusin, when male mates with male or female with female. Now, do you hear what the phrase means? And, and I've got actually a number of, of examples here in this uh, where I can read you. Let me give you another one here. Uh, this is from first century Stoic. I don't know how to say his name. Musonius Rufus. Okay. First, so he's, he lived around the same time as Paul, at the same time as Paul. Uh, he's not a believer, but this is what he, he wrote. Quote, 
But of all sexual relations, those involving adultery are most unlawful and no more tolerable than those involving males with males because the daring and flagrant act is parathusin, contrary to nature, a male with a male in a sexual act. I mean, you see, and I've got a whole host of quotes just like that that he collects from the ancient world. Josephus and Philo speak the exact same way. And I could, I could, I could almost bore you with all these quotes. He's got, he's got 74 pages in this book devoted just to Romans 1. Uh, th these two verses, wow. basically. He's got 74 pages going into detail. So just so you know, what it sounds like when you're reading it in English is what it actually sounds like in Greek. It, it, this, is, this is exactly what Paul is referring to. There's no question about it. Let me read it one more time. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, stop there. Do you understand? That includes the desire itself, not just the action, as dishonorable passions. So even when a man has a sexual desire for another man, and he's, he's uh, giving himself over to that, Paul calls the actual passion itself dishonorable. You see, so it goes to the matter of lust, not just action. Then it says this. This is the only mention specifically of lesbianism in the whole Bible. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are parafusin, contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Again, the passion is included. The lust is included. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, just to respond... I even have a friend who I've known for a long time who argue with me that this, is, this text doesn't mean what it sounds like it's saying. This is not a, a full-blown condemnation of faithful, monogamous, same-sex relationships. I said, well, please help me see that <laughs> in the text. That's not what this is saying. So I, I, multiple, you, you, can, you may know people who will make these kinds of arguments. Number one argument is very common. People will say, you know, if you look up sexual morality in the Roman world, it's pretty messed up. And we would agree, it's pretty messed up. And here's what they'll say. In the first century Rome, and this is true, and forgive me, this is so direct, but this is just true, okay? I don't know what else to say. Um, pederasty was extraordinarily common. This is older men with younger boys. And I've read stuff that makes my skin crawl. It is despicable. It is disgusting. One Roman historian uh, said that women were not allowed generally to do whatever they wanted sexually. There, there was a much more of a, a shame connected to it for women. But men, free Roman men, could basically sleep with whoever they wanted to as long as it wasn't another man's wife. They could sleep with whoever they wanted to. So they could sleep with all kinds of different people, including boys. And it was very common in the Roman world for boys to be targeted by men. Now, now let me start here. If a boy is being manipulated by a man, molested or raped or abused or attacked by an older man, we all agree that's despicable. That cannot be the sole target of what Paul is talking about in this text. You know why? Paul, there's multiple reasons. Number one, he says, they are consumed with passion for one another. That's not a rape victim. I talked about this last time. That's not rape. A rape victim is not consumed with passion of love for the person who is attacking her or him. That's not the point. This is not a one-sided sexual act. This is a two-directed act. They are consumed with passion one for another. So number one, it can't be simply pederasty. But number, number two reason it can't just be pederasty is look at the words here in verse 27. For men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. boys? No, men, like Fred said. The, the, the word uh, arsane, I believe, is the word, the Greek word for male is used two times 
It's literally men and men. Men in men is the literal Greek, or men with men is in the literal Greek. Men with men committing shameless acts. It does not say, and there is definitely a word for boy. The, the word pedo, the, the word where we get pedo and, and pederasty and those things. They could have used the word for boy. Men with boys could have been used if that was Paul's only target or his main target. Of course, Paul would condemn pederasty with all his heart. But Paul is not simply talking about that. He's referring to, he's referring to mutually consenting. Even adult, same-sex relationships, whether it be between two adult women or two adult men. Let me give a third reason why it can't be pederasty. Uh, I don't know if it was DeYoung points this out or who it was, but in the ancient Roman world, now if they, if they discover one of these, it won't change my argument, but up till now, from, based on scholarship, there has not yet been one discovery, and if you can find one, I'd love to know about it, but there has not yet been one discovery that I'm aware of, of an adult woman having a sexual relationship with a, with a girl, with, a, with an underage girl. That, that, there isn't, that, that did not happen in the Roman world, at least not that's recorded. So lesbianism was much more rare than male homosexuality in the Roman world, but both of them obviously happened. That's why Paul addresses both of them clearly here. But here you're dealing with women, with women, not simply women with girls. So again, pederasty is not the main target of Paul's condemnation here. He's referring to, well, listen, he's referring to all same-sex sexual lust and all same-sex sexual relationships. And there's, there's honestly no way to, to get around this. Thoughts on this very important passage? Well, Fred, you were going to say something, so um, I'll go. It goes back to something we, we've said before. I had to check what I was going to say. Yeah, I got you, man. <laughs> got um, keep it holy. <laughs> we want to let Scripture speak. We don't want to try to read into Scripture what's not there, um, or assume that because Scripture might not specifically address one thing, that it doesn't address it some other way. Um, and so looking at the passages that we did last week in 1 Corinthians, um, especially in 1 Corinthians, and one there one other place. Um, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Like, Paul could not be clearer that any form of male-to-male sexual relationship is sin. Like, he could not be clearer. Um, the terms that he uses, they're not as specific as, for instance, pederasty or something like that. They are more general to encompass the whole thing. The same way the word porneia encompasses all sexual relationship outside of marriage, the terminology that Paul uses that we're given in Scripture, it forbids any kind of contact or relationship in that way. And so it really is special pleading to try to, to make the case that, well, it's only talking about a deviant form of, you know, some specific type of sexuality, but not committed, loving, monogamous, homo- there's no such thing in Scripture as committed, loving, monogamous, homosexual marriage. It's a fiction. It does not exist. It's something you have to create outside of the Bible and then try to twist Scripture to make Scripture fit. There's no other way to put it. Um, and so we need to be very clear on that. That it just is not there. And it, just to back that, Ephesians 5, the husband is meant to mirror Christ, the husband, the head. Yeah. The, the wife is called to mirror in her submission to her husband the role of the bride, the church. You have to have inherently a male playing the role of Christ and a female to, to, to imitate the role of the church. So from, from Genesis in, in the Garden of Eden all the way to the end of the Bible, marriage is definitionally in Scripture male and female. That is what the definition, to, to speak of marriage being something other than a, male, a man and a woman is to speak of something that doesn't exist in God's mind. So, so that we can call it marriage, but it's mm-hmm. not actually going to be marriage in the, in the eyes of God. Let, let me back this up, okay? This is something that was new to me a couple years ago. 
in, in Romans 1, the context is screaming Genesis 1 and 2. And I hadn't thought about this, but look at the connections here. Did he mention creation since the creation of the world? In, 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 so listen to all these connections. Verse 20, he mentions the creation of the world, which makes you think of Genesis 1 and 2. Number 2, he mentions the creator. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God the creator, but they, they gave themselves to creation. Number 3, the, he mentions idols that are in the form of animals, birds, and creeping things. That echoes the Greek of Genesis 1.30. God made the animals, the birds, the creeping things to dwell on the earth. How about this? Um, when it says words, these are words that are both... Okay, I don't want to lose you. <laughs> Paul's using the same words in Romans 1 that are used in the Greek translation of Genesis 1. Okay, now listen to all the words that are the same Greek words. You ready? The word image is used in both texts. The word likeness is used. Man is used. Birds are used. Four-footed animals. Creeping things. The image of lie. The image of shame. The word of shame. The sentence of death are all referred to in both Romans 1 and Genesis 1. This is the loudest way Paul can possibly be telling you, I'm referring to Adam and Eve here. I'm referring back to the beginning here. I'm referring to God's original pattern and what is un, that is what is natural or what is according to nature is how God made us in the beginning, male and female. What is unnatural is to go against the Genesis 1 pattern of Adam and Eve and to distort that to two women or two, two men. That is, to, that is what the unnatural means. Let me, let me just add here what um, people will say. I think a friend of mine told me this. I'm forgetting all the details of what he said. But one argument is this. To act against nature does not mean against male and female relations, but against nature means to go against your personal uh, sexual orientation. So the argument is Paul is simply referring to heterosexual men and heterosexual women, that is women with a heterosexual orientation and men with a heterosexual orientation who go against their natural instinct of that orientation and instead pursue homosexual activity against their personal nature, against their personal sexual orientation. So they take nature to mean your personal sexual feelings or orientation. Okay? And so to act against nature, so they would ironically say that this text means someone with a homosexual orientation to act as a heterosexual would be the same sin Paul's condemning, to act against your nature. Now, what do you do with that? Well, number one, is that how against nature is used in the first century and in the Greek literature? Parafusin. No, it means homosexual activity, very clearly in Philo, Josephus, and Plato, and others. But number two... What sense would this even make? Number one, he uses Genesis as your background, right? Genesis language is everywhere. So nature is how God made us in the beginning, male and female. That's the nature that we're rebelling against. And next, the important thing to say would be, these people don't have uh, what you would call a heterosexual orientation when it says they were consumed with passion for one another. That sounds like what people today would call a homosexual desire, right? So Paul is clearly referring to people who are acting against the nature how God made us in the beginning and are, are, are instead acting against nature uh, in that way. Let, let me add one more thing. Okay, a couple more technical things. I don't want to overburden you with all these things. But you remember last week, if you were here, in Leviticus, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, when Paul says he uses those two Greek words for the active and passive participant in a sexual act, arsenikoites was the word, the, the active participant in the same sex act. Remember remember the other word for the feminine role of the male, which is malakoi? Remember that word? Now listen to how that word malakia, malakoi, is being used in the Greek of the time of Paul. You ready? Listen to this. I won't read the whole thing. It's a little bit intense. But this is coming from uh, Plato again. So he says, if union is contrary to nature, and he starts talking about this, he says, the union of males, either unwillingly with force and plunder or willingly with malakia, softness, Okay, now, now, now don't lose me here. He's saying some, in some same-sex relationships, the, the perpetrator is doing this against someone's will, which would be 
rape, and it could be pederasty. But he says, in other cases, it is not unwilling. Both participants are willing. And he says, the one who is being acted upon is acting willingly with Malachia. That's exactly how Paul uses the term in 1 Corinthians 6 for the passive participant in the same sex act. I just want to show you that, and there's an, I could give you another quote of the same thing. Those words are being used in the Greek literature exactly as we said last week when we were talking about those texts. And I've got, uh, well, I think I'm, I'm going to stop there. Papa Fred, thoughts on, on all that? I, I, had, I mentioned before I had to, had to check myself. Of course, I'm in a different generation um, and this this is very hard to even hear. It's even more difficult to digest, and it's more um, uh, the the pace with which these uh, the culture has changed on these issues is unparalleled. Um, I'm I, I might be incorrect, but I don't think there's ever been a situation in the history of the world where a, a country or a, a people have uh, ordained something like this. Even in Rome, it, while it was a somewhat common practice, right. uh, you didn't have laws regulating it or permitting it and that type of thing. It just happened. And, uh, and so we've, we've gone so far. Uh, I was thinking as you were reading uh, in, in, in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They, and, and, and they exchanged. They exchanged what was, what was um, proper for that which was improper. And uh, that's an abomination. And I think in, in uh, Leviticus it's called an abomination. And it's interesting to me that, um, have you ever wondered why of all the sins Paul could pick as the first example of what sin looks like after we commit idolatry? Why does he spend two full verses on homosexuality? Later in the chapter, he mentions all kinds of sins. Look at verse 29. He mentions evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hating God, insolent, proud, boastful, inventing evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Then he says, they, they, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. A lot of people say, well, you know... Uh, why does Paul spend two verses on homosexuality and then just list all these other ones, one word each? You ever wonder about that? Well, I, I think this has got to be at the heart of the answer. See if this makes sense to you. Paul is talking about people who suppress the truth that's seen in nature. They see the artwork and they deny that there's an artist, right? They see creation and they deny that there's a creator and they worship creation Right, they're doing a, it's a foolish exchange. They obviously know that something greater is above us, but yet they worship the creation. And then Paul says, let me give you a second example of what sin looks like. Listen, when we see God's design clearly in nature and we directly reject it, what clearer design in nature is there than the human reproductive system? Anybody, you don't need a Bible. You know how the reproductive system of a human being works. You cannot reproduce asexually. You need a male and a female. There is no such thing as two women naturally reproducing or two men naturally reproducing. It can't happen. Uh, that, that's not a thing. Uh, technology, who knows what people will try to do genetically. But, but as far as nature goes, it is obvious. You, don't have, you could be a complete atheist. You could be a complete unbeliever. You don't need a, you've never read the Bible in your life. And you know how the human reproductive system is meant to work. It is obvious in its design. It screams at us that a male reproductive, organ, a male reproductive uh, system and a female reproductive system together are what have the potential to create human life. So that means God has shown us through nature the purpose of sexuality. 
That's what it's for, a male and a female, in the right context. And yet, with homosexuality, Paul points that sin out in particular because he's want, he wants to say, listen, this is an obvious suppression of truth given through nature. We know how this is supposed to work, and we suppress the truth of male-female, and we go against nature. And again, I won't be overly graphic, but how the male and male, and male homosexuality is a pretty intense thing, what happens there. And female and female homosexuality, what they actually do is something you, you, Paul says it's better not to speak of what the disobedient do in secret. It's, it can be shameful. But, but those things do not lead to life. They do not re- lead to reproduction. So Paul says, if, if I want to show you two obvious exchanges. One is, we don't worship the artist who made the artwork of creation. We instead worship the art itself, which is foolish switch number one. Number two is, when two men have a sexual relationship or even two women have a sexual relationship, they are clearly suppressing the obvious truth of God's design for sexual reproduction in nature. And they're going against God's clear design for a sexual relationship that cannot reproduce, therefore is clearly going against its designed intent. Do you you understand that? That's what Paul's doing. He's not saying homosexuality is the only sin that exists, but he is clearly highlighting it as a very serious sin and a sin that very much shows the denial and suppression of the biblical God. And and he he lists with it sins we've all committed too, like... um, Deceit and gossip and hating God and disobeying our parents, all these sins deserve death. And let me just say clearly, this is all said in the context of gospel hope. Right before this, what did he just say? The righteousness of God is being revealed through Christ so that anyone who's committed any sin in this chapter, which is all of us, because we've all sinned in some way in this chapter, right? You ever gossiped? Ever had uh, disobedience to your parents? Ever done anything like that? We all deserve death. We all turn from sin. We trust in Christ. We're covered in His righteousness. It doesn't matter what life you've lived. You can be saved. I'll just tell you one more thing I want to hear from Greg here. I had a Spanish teacher in high school. Uh, I don't mind saying her name, Christy Richardson. She's now a missionary uh, to Muslims with her husband and her family. And wonderful family, Christy Richardson. When she was teaching me back in like ninth grade, and I was doing a terrible job learning my Spanish words and colors (laughs) and everything. She was a great teacher. I was not a great student. I remember her saying to pray for her father. Her father was absolutely sold into the homosexual lifestyle. I don't know exactly how, 50s, something, somewhere in there, maybe in his 50s. He was absolutely like, I, from what I remember, he's like gay bars and, and many, many one-night stands with many different men over the course of years. He was absolutely committed to the same-sex lifestyle. And she was grieved by this. We prayed for her dad. I get to college a few years later. I see a story on, I think, Facebook or something about her, her dad. And I click on it. And I don't have the, I can't even find the video anymore. It's not, I can't find it. But, but in 2007, I saw the video, I think it was. Her dad sits there on a video for a church and is looking into the camera and he's just been baptized. And he said, I was invited to this church a, a number of months ago. I didn't, nothing in me wanted me to go. I grew up going to church. He said, I pulled up in the parking lot and he said, I was so ashamed of myself. I didn't even want to go near. I thought everyone was going to look at me a certain way. People kind of know my background. He said, I finally got the courage to walk in the door of the church. The service, I think, had already started. He slipped into the back in the dark corner and sat down. And he said, the song that was being sung, you know the song, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. God's spirit is within me because you died and rose again. And he said, that song, absolutely, the first moment he walked into that church, the song gripped his heart. And he said, there's no way I could be accepted. There's no way Jesus could, be, could take my place for sin. He was converted, I believe, that first Sunday in the church. His life has completely changed. And I saw Christy Richardson a year ago. Jerry and I met with her at school a year ago. And she said her father is still walking with the Lord today. 
Mm. So wow. th- th- please don't understand. Nothing we have said today denies that. Anyone, no matter who you are, or how sinful your life has been or my life has been, if we will simply turn and trust Christ, I don't care if it's been 10 years of gay bars like that had been happening here. I don't care what it's been. He has been completely washed, forgiven, cleansed. His whole life has been turned around. He loves Jesus and he loves others. And now he's completely back in, her, in his daughter's life and the grandchildren's life. He's a completely new, a new man entirely because of Jesus. I almost don't want to say what I was going to talk <laughs> no, about no, after go. hearing that, man, because that is so, so amazing to That's hear. Amazing. Um, I was just going to go back to underneath all of this, we have to remember is first a rejection of God. Like when we exchange, as verse 23 says, the glory of the immortal God for something else. I mean, anytime we sin, in essence, that's what we're doing mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but when, we, it, when it's more of a settled disposition that I'm not going to embrace God's way, I'm not going to embrace God, I'm going to ch- prefer something else, it opens the door to any manner and all manner of evil and wickedness. It just, it does. And so for us, I want to make sure that we as a church, as individual believers, that we are always careful to guard our relationship with God. What does Proverbs say? Guard your heart, for from it flow, you know, the, the, the springs of life. Um, you know, Jesus says, out of the heart proceed all, this evil th- all these evil things. Like, we have to guard our hearts and our relationship with God. Um, because if we, if we just coast... If we just think, well, I've got all this knowledge. I even, you know, I go to a great church. I don't really have to work hard to sharpen my mind and sharpen my thinking. Um, Some of the most heartbreaking stories of people who are well-known professing believers who depart from the faith, they come from conservative churches who taught the Bible, who believe the Bible, but they got careless with their heart. Mm-hmm. They got careless with their lives and their sin. Um, and they stopped thinking about it the way God tells us to think. There's going to be some examples. I'm guessing we'll talk about this next week. We have to name a few names. We need to look at Rosaria Butterfield, mm-hmm. talk about her conversion story. Which is a wonderful um, story. And we need to talk about some prominent Christians who have started to waver on this. And we have to ask the question, why and what's the danger? Yep. Um, but it all comes back to we got careless with our heart and over time something at the beginning we would have said there's no way I would do that when we are careless over time the things that at one point would shock us stop shocking us and we start embracing endorsing and engaging in things that we at one point said we'd never do mm. so I'll finish with that would you close us in prayer? yeah let's pray father what a what a sobering text what a sobering issue um, Lord thank you for how clear your word is God, it is such a blessing and a treasure that you've given us with the clarity of Scripture on this topic. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that each one of us would remain firmly rooted in what the Scriptures teach. Lord, help us not be deceived. Help us to watch our hearts and guard our relationship with you, uh, Lord, at all costs, God, because we don't want what Paul's writing about here to be our experience. Um, Lord, help us to be humble and gracious and kind and compassionate towards anyone who is caught up in this lie of homosexuality. Lord, help us to humbly but boldly preach the truth. Help us to do so without apology. 
Lord, help us hold forth that hope of transformation, of forgiveness, of new life, of eternal life, of reconciliation with you, of a greater and deeper and more lasting satisfaction that this world can never give, no matter how much it says it can. God, only you can satisfy. And I pray, Lord, that we would be unashamed of the gospel, which brings us back into that relationship with you where our souls can find rest in the one who made us and can satisfy us forever.